0: find the great unknown. It's one of the immutable laws of life, and it's this, that in order to take hold of the life that is truly life, we have, to, we have to let go. And it's against that backdrop that we all have to come to grips with the fact that we've got an innate desire for safe, for predictable, for what's expected, for what passes for normal. But at the same time. There's something that stirs deep, deep down inside of us. We also really and truly want life to be fulfilling, that we want it to be satisfying, and from time to time even exhilarating and exciting, and so we've got this constant push and pull tension in our lives. It's a tension that I think kids deal with less than grown-ups I remember one time when our daughter Emily was very young she was in early elementary school and we asked her that that age-old question Emily what do you want to be when you grow up and Emily who's now in college and still has never underthought a situation in her life kind of pondered for a minute and she said well okay I want to be a mom a teacher and the first woman president of the United States and we were like, well, you go, girl, get you some, that's awesome, knock yourself out. And I, I could tell at the mo- in that moment that her little brother, Joseph, wanted to participate. And so we asked Joseph, Joseph, what do you want to be when you grow up? And Joseph, who was not yet in school, but was not to be outdone by his older sister, pretended in that preschool way to ponder. And he said, well, I think I just want to be everything. And we were like, Emily, would you just have some drive like your brother Joe? A mom, a teacher, the president? So what? He wants to be everything. Man, what would you give to, to hold on to the audacity of a child? To, to hang on to that, that audacity that causes you to dream big dreams and to pursue them with everything that you've got? I think maybe a better question. Than then what would you give is, what wouldn't you give? I I mean, there's something inside of, there's something that just, we're drawn to that, I think. That's part of why we like to ask kids, what do you be, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the good news, quite literally, the good news of Jesus is that we never have to abandon that audacity as we age. As a matter of fact, his ministry, the message of Jesus is actually a mandate to, to maintain and to mature in that audacity, to, to go after the life that is truly life. Jesus himself said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full, abundant and, and, and overflowing, so, so never quit dreaming, never quit, never quit reaching for, for what's next and, and praying for and working toward what's next. Next, it's, it's a promise that is presented throughout the pages of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. But there's one particular clip of Scripture that, that we're going to use this weekend as we kind of punch the audacity afterburner coming in after Easter. A, a passage of Scripture that is the core of this series that we're beginning today, there's got to be more. This, this promise from God, it's found in Ephesians In Ephesians chapter number 3, the Bible proclaims something really profound as the Apostle Paul is writing to that church there in Ephesus. He's explaining how the gospel, how this relationship with Jesus that they have entered into permeates every part of life. And, And look at what he says in Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more... Then all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. Everybody say Amen. amen. Amen's a good church word, isn't it? We we know that we're supposed to say that from, from our youngest age when we start, you know, maybe saying a blessing at the table, you know, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. I never understood why that didn't rhyme, and so I always tried to make it rhyme, but but we would say, amen, and, and the word amen simply means, let it be. So whatever we have just prayed in Jesus' name, for God to be great, for our food to be great, whatever, amen means, let it be. And so the Apostle Paul says, let it be that God does immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. It is this promise that he makes here in Ephesians chapter 3. But I want you to notice, it's a promise that's presented in the context of a contract. It's a contract, this covenant relationship between God and his people, through whom he will reveal immeasurably more. It is his power that's at work through us, that in relationship with Jesus, We would be the conduit. We would be the the pipeline for the very power of God. But but am I too far out here on a limb if I suggest to you that that kind of power is is something that most of us experience very, very rarely. It's not something that is a, a regular reality for us. As a matter of fact, unless we encounter a crisis that kind of drives us to our knees in prayers of desperation, or unless somebody very close to us is threatened or becomes very, very ill, it, this kind of power is more of a, an event or a one-off or a once-in-a-few-times-over-a-lifetime kind of a thing. But as we go through these next few weeks together as a church, as we get into this promise that God has made, in the context of this contract, that there is, in fact, more in Jesus. That Jesus uniquely promises, provides, and gives us more through his power. We're going to have to do something that is a little counterintuitive. When we think about this extraordinary power, and it's immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, in order to access that on a regular basis, we've got to see how we apply that, how we access that power in the mundane, in the day in and day out in our everyday existence. And this weekend, as we launch this series, we're gonna launch it by talking about a subject that's one of the most misunderstood, but most mundane, most everyday, most defamed, most disparaged parts of life. And I'm talking about work. Work. You know, for a lot of people, work is a four-letter word. Some of you will get that at lunch today. That's okay. Work is something to be endured. It's something to just kind of put up with because you have to put food on the table. When in reality, it is in work that we discover who God is most accurately. It's in our work that we discover this more that he promises throughout the entire Bible, and yet, it's in our work that a lot of us, as a matter of fact, statistically, we know the majority of us, experience some of the greatest frustration and disappointment that we'll ever know. Just this year, in January, the Gallup organization released their latest survey on United States employee engagement. And what they found was chilling, that of United States American workers, fewer than 33%, less than one-third of American workers are actually engaged in the workplace. And by engaged, they mean they're enthusiastic, committed, and excited about what they do day in and day out. Worldwide, that number plummets to 13%. Now, here's what's interesting. The Gallup organization went below that number and started doing a little more digging. and What they found is that all workers attribute 70% of their engagement to their manager. To the person who works directly above them that they answer to, that person is responsible, according to us, for 70% of our sense of engagement in the marketplace. Now, that's an interesting number, but what's frightening is... Of those managers and leaders in the marketplace only 35% of them are actually engaged in their job they're just going through the motions so listen when it comes to worker engagement when it comes to work satisfaction you and I live in a world that has got some serious problems tell your neighbor we got problems now, before we get too down on ourselves and kind of discouraged, let me, let me rush to tell you that we are in some great company. A- as a matter of fact, the wisest person who ever lived experienced deep, deep dissatisfaction in his job. I'm talking, of course, about Solomon. Solomon, the third king of the nation of Israel, the son of King David. Solomon ascended to the throne at a time of incredible peace, and prosperity for the nation of Israel. Solomon was not only the wisest person in the world, which, by the way, how cool would it be to put that on your resume? If you're looking for a job, or you're, maybe you're looking for another round of venture funding, and you're like, hey, here's the job description, and here's our little dog and pony road show. but just so you know, I'm the wisest person in the world. You're getting the cash at that point. <laughs> Solomon was not only the wisest person in the world, he was the wealthiest person that the world has ever No, Solomon's bank account was huge. Solomon was making Israel great again, and it was against that backdrop. You have to laugh to keep from crying. That's all I'm going to say. But I digress. I'm telling the truth, but I digress. Solomon had worker dissatisfaction. (laughs) He did. And because he came to the throne at a time of prosperity and peace, he had time for intellectual, philosophical pursuits. And he dedicated his life to the pursuit of wisdom. He asked God. God said, you name what you want from me, and I will give it to you. And Solomon asked for wisdom. And you and I are the better for it because... We've received so much of what God revealed to him and gave to him in that prayer in the book of Proverbs, in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. Ecclesiastes especially is interesting because this is kind of Solomon's PhD dissertation on purpose and meaning in life. And very early in the book of Ecclesiastes, he tackles the subject of work. Look at what Solomon writes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 4, number first of all, first of all, Verse 4, he says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and and I planted vineyards. So so Solomon's doing what kings do. I mean, you you build palaces, you you build stuff, you've got the money, you've got the wherewithal, you've got the time, knock yourself out. And and after verse 4, he goes into some detail about the projects that he undertook and and what he went after and what he built and, and what he worked on. Then look at what he says in verse 11, yet... When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Sounds to me like Solomon had an engagement problem. He he wasn't engaged in his work. He was the king. Wouldn't you think, if you're looking for a new job, and you're going through the one edge and you see king, circle that one and call that number. That's a good gig. And yet as king, it was all meaningless. Work for the sake of work, Solomon says, is meaningless. Now we don't have time to go through the entire book of Ecclesiastes, just let me suffice it to say that he didn't leave it there. That, that's not the end of Ecclesiastes, that's the beginning. But what you and I have to get at is how do we make work matter? Specifically, if, if we're a Christian, if we're a follower of Christ, how does the gospel matter where I work? What we're talking about here is developing a theology of work. Now, now don't check out on me. I know some of you are like, oh, please, let's don't. But... Let me me just ask you to trust me for a few minutes and and just follow where this goes because what we're really talking about is is what does it look like if God infiltrates the marketplace where you work every day? What, What does it look like if God brings that power to do immeasurably more than what we could ask or imagine into your office, your cubicle, your CEO corner office, but not only in the marketplace, what about in the home place? What if stay-at-home moms saw their job as a divine calling rather than just a, a test of wills trying to keep people alive from day to day, but but they said, I've been called by God to raise up a generation of world changers, and when they leave our home, they're going to be difference makers. What if, what if high school and middle school students looked at school not just as something to be endured, but as a place where not only academically but extracurricularly and socially with their friends, that that their faith could actually come alive and be lived out in everything that they do. That all of a sudden is a game changer. But to get there, we've got to understand how God views work. And, And it's fascinating to me that whatever you believe about God, whatever you know to be true and however many Bible verses you may have memorized, the first thing we learn about God in the Bible is that God works. He works. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now let me, let me ask you a question. How many of you in the room consider yourself Creative or imaginative in, in some ways. Let me just see a show of hands. If you think you're creative or imaginative, keep your hands up. Some of you are like, well, it's like I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. Now, let me just say this. If your hand's not up right now, you're forgetting, just briefly, hopefully, that you're created in the image of God. And by definition, created in the image of God means He put in you slivers of his character and personality. And if we know he's creative, then he's created us to be creative. Now, it's going to happen in different ways. Not every one of us is a songwriter like me. Not everybody is a painter or a sculptor. My wife, Julie, is brilliantly creative as a mom and as a speaker and communicator. She has a, a sixth sense weird gear that I deeply deeply envy. But that's my own personal spiritual struggle. She's got that gear that God placed in her. I, I saw her over and over again as our kids were growing up and at home and even now as they're in college. She, she thinks so creatively and strategically in the moment considering what's beyond the moment. That's creativity. So, some people are, are accountants and, and you've got creativity, hopefully not too much, but, but you've got it and you, you take the laws that, that are in effect in our land and you use them creatively to help your clients conform to the law and adhere to the law, but also not pay them they should, more than they should. All of these things echo the divine character of God. But look at what the Bible says also in Genesis chapter 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now we're going to hang out here for just a few minutes because we need to mine this clip of Scripture. We need to get in this and understand not only who God is, but what God does And to do that, I'm going to ask everybody, if you will, pull out the program that you got when you came in this morning, because I'm going to give you some notes that we're going to come back to in a minute. This is not just about head knowledge and and information that you can dazzle your friends with at work and at parties this coming week. But in Genesis chapter 1, we see the fact that God presents his purposes through work. Work presents the purposes of God. First of all, the first purpose of God presented in His work is creativity and beauty. Think about this morning here in Austin, Texas. First of all, we woke up in Austin. Amen. 39 dead gum degrees in April. Would somebody please help me? But it's, it was awesome. Not a cloud in the sky. You want to talk about beautiful. In the created order, you see God's purposes of creativity and and beauty. You see also in God's creation order and peace. God brings order and peace. What does it say? It says, the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the original Hebrew of Genesis chapter 1, the word used there is the same word we use for chaos. Before God brought his creative order to it, everything was chaos. And yet, out of the chaos, God brought order and peace. There was productivity. God actually produced something when he worked. He produced the world. He produced the trees of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the animals that scurry along the ground. He produced you and me. Look around this room for just a second. Look at the creative genius. Seriously, look around the room. Look at the people in this room. Look at the creative genius coupled with the sense of humor of God. In his productivity, look at what he did. Also, in God's creation, he offered provision. Part of what God does when he creates is he provides in his creation he gave humanity everything that we would need to exist he gave us the garden he gave us dominion and authority over the creative order which means we also have responsibility for it sierra club but but he gave us authority over that creative order he he allows us to harvest from the created order for our own sustenance There's this provisioning that happens, but there's there's another item on God's to-do list in in his job description that's not included in Genesis chapter 1, because in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2, we have creation. Everything that God did, he said, and it is good, it is good, it is good, but in Genesis chapter 3, we know that sin entered the picture, that humanity, you and I, rebelled against God. We rejected his plan, his creative order, his work to go our own way and to chart our own course. And as soon as that sin, that brokenness and death and decay entered the world, God went to work and added one more thing to his to-do list, restoration. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned and hid from God, He set about the business of restoring humanity, you and me, into a right relationship with himself. That's Easter. It reached its apex in Jesus, on the cross, in the resurrection, so that we could be restored ultimately to be manifest in Jesus' return when everything is set right, when all justice is taken care of. And those who believe in Christ, who will never die, will shed no more tears. There will be no more sickness, no more death. It's that restoration, not only of humanity, but that restoration of creation. We know the New Testament tells us that creation is now groaning as in the pains of childbirth, waiting for Jesus' return. So when you look at this list of God's purposes, his creativity and beauty, order and peace, productivity, provision, restoration, you see that all of it is done under the umbrella of what we know to be true about God at his core, that God is love. So when God works, when God does anything, love is made manifest, love becomes real. And maybe the most loving thing that God ever did was He invited us to partner, check this out, to collaborate, to co-labor with Him in this world, in His work, so that anybody who creates, anybody who brings beauty into the world is actually Partnering with God. If you're a painter and you paint with everything that you've got. If if you create opportunities for people, if you you serve. One one of my favorite things to do is to go get a cup of coffee when I'm working, or several when I'm working on the sermon. And and I love going to a coffee shop when the barrister doesn't just like go through the motions, but like, you know, you know those ones who they kind of got a little flourish and they they, you know they draw that shot. And I'm not talking about the automatic shot pullers, okay? I'm talking about the people who know what they're doing. And they, they draw that shot, and then, you know, if, let's say that you get a latte, no-fat latte with one raw sugar, and, and they, 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 they go through it, and they, they take that cream, and they just, and they do a design in the top of your crema on the top of that thing. I think God has a special place in heaven for people who make coffee like that. <laughs> people who produce, people who, who make things, people who are mechanics. I, I think, about, think about trash collectors, man, Friday morning, some, usually before 7.30 at my house. I can hear that big diesel truck pull up. Boop, boop, boop. When I tell you, it warms the inside of my heart to know that the trash is gone. Those guys are bringing order and peace to our lives. I think about people who bring peace and justice in our world law enforcement officers, judges, attorneys who who practice law for all of the right reasons, in the right ways, and and they're bringing justice to a world that is literally dying for it. See, here's here's the beautiful thing about this theology of work. You don't have to turn in a letter of resignation tomorrow in order to live it out. The, The prayer is this, God, show me how to present your personality, your power, your purposes, In my work. God, show me how to present your power, your personality, your purposes through what I do every day. Because work presents the purposes of God. I was visiting with a friend of mine weeks ago, and he's a financial planner. And he said, man, I just, I'm having trouble. Like, I, I know I'm helping people, but I just, it's like, it's hard for me every day. And I was like, Do you understand that that God's using you to help people put their kids through college? He's using you to provide peace in households and homes so that they've got money for retirement? And, And let's not forget the fact that as you do this, you're providing for your family, which, by the way, is a spiritual effort. That's work. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, told the church at Thessalonica, he who will not work will not eat. Now deal with that for a second. We're not talking about people who can't work. I'm not, that's a whole different deal. The church is called to love and provide for the poor, the orphans, and the widows. But when we work, there is a provisioning that goes on. The Apostle Paul also told Timothy in his church there, be careful because people who won't provide for their families, especially their immediate families, Paul said, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they're worse than unbelievers. See, we're supposed to work, we're supposed to produce, we're supposed to provide. But the key is, what are we providing? What is it that we're really all about? And ladies and gentlemen, that's a hard issue. But when you understand what God does with work, what God does through work, then you start to understand what we're supposed to be about, all of us. We're all better off when we're more productive. What is the devil's playground? Idle hands. Idle hands are the devil's playground. When we get bored, when we're not actively engaged, that's when we get in trouble. That's one of the big challenges about college. Got too much free time. We spend our whole lives in class. Eight, nine hours a day, and then we got three hours of homework. Then all of a sudden we've got three hours of class, eight, nine hours of free time. That's a recipe for disaster if we're not really careful about it. But when you see the purposes of God through work, you also understand the heart of the Spur Leadership Conference in a week and a half. In a week and a half, we're gathering a group of marketplace leaders to provide real help and hope and handles where people live it's not a church service it's not gonna we're not gonna pass an offering or or ask people to bow their heads and lock the doors until everybody accepts Jesus all we're doing is gathering people asking you to bring your friends your coworkers, your clients to give them some real-world help and hope and handles for where they live day in and day out, to move beyond the disengaged 68%, to move beyond and see work as a calling, as something that matters. Because for those of us who go by the name Christ follower, if we really believe the gospel, the good news, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would never die, but would have eternal life. If we believe that gospel matters at all, then it matters everywhere. So being a part of that Spur leadership conference, I, I know some of you look at that, man, that's a whole day. I can't, I can't do a whole day, but I want you to think about one day, one day in your life, one day in the life of your coworkers, your friends, one day invested in making work, everything that it can be. One day invested in being salt and light to our neighbors, where they live, at their point of greatest frustration and greatest need, that's what it's about. Just like Fearless Mom, Mobile Loaves and Fishes, Student Ministries, LHC Kids, everything else that we do, it's an invitation to the life That is truly life. And through that invitation, having the opportunity to prayerfully, potentially, maybe see those friends and co workers and neighbors, family members step into the life that is truly life and experience immeasurably more than all they could ever ask or imagine in the only one who can do that Jesus that's what this is that's what this theology of work is all about not just in terms of a conference in a week and a half but every day every day I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment just a brief moment and in this moment I want to just highlight more. The promise of immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. The promise that, in the context of this contract, this covenant relationship with God, We can experience the life we were created to experience, even at work, in every part of life, because of Jesus. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that relationship, into that power, we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. It doesn't take an elaborate ceremony. You don't have to to pass a test or attend a certain number of classes. It simply requires you, just every part of who you are, surrendered to Jesus, committing to follow Him with everything you've got from this moment forward. It's a relationship. It's a relationship that begins with a single step of faith. Just praying right where you're sitting, just praying silently in your own words, something like this, just just talk to God and just say silently, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin." I claim your forgiveness, and I give you my life. I will follow you from this moment forward. If everybody would, just for a moment, remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, but. If that was your prayer and you meant it, this is the greatest moment of your life. And it's a moment that, as a church, we want to help with, we want to serve you any way that we can, and the best way to do that is to get that conversation started by just taking the the connect card that's in the program you got when you came in fill it out and indicate there I'm committing my life to Christ today or if you have a prayer request another way that we can help and serve you in any way you can use that connect card there also if you have questions about church or this church Fill it out. But for those of you who stepped over that line of faith this morning and stepped into that relationship, we want you to know there's nothing more important to us as a church. It's the reason we exist. And so we honor that. We celebrate that in your life we would just ask that before you leave today, if you would just just make a brief moment to make a personal connection and hand that card to one of our ushers or to somebody at the little blue awning outside underneath the tent. But as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a brief moment more, if that was your prayer today and you meant it, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand for a moment and hold it up to stamp this moment. Indelibly in your life but also in the life of this church and know that we're offering ourselves we want to be a family of faith to you with you as you put your hands down we put our hands together and we tell you welcome home welcome home